Therefore, if you don't trust that the person who is telling you you have to do something has your best interest at heart, you're going to be pretty resistant. But the data so far, as their mandates are starting to be really pressed, a majority of those that were resistant have accepted the vaccine. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Bill and Fred, as always, thanks in advance. And I'm just going to open up the floor because I know uh, both of you have been focusing on specific issues. And maybe we'll begin with the question of vaccines for uh, women who are at various stages of pregnancy. And I think, Bill, you've been looking at some of the data and you have some insights. And Fred, uh, you as well. Sure. The uh as you know, the, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology from late 2020 has been encouraging women who are pregnant to get uh, vaccinated with the, the argument being that, yes, there is a risk of vaccination, but the risk of vaccination pales in comparison to the risk to mom and baby if mother gets infected with COVID while pregnant. Um, that was initially not supported by World Health Organization. And then, then within a couple of months, early in 2021, they came around to saying the same thing. Now, just earlier this week, the U.S. CDC uh, put out a statement urgently recommending women uh, to get who are pregnant, con- uh, contemplating pregnancy, imme- postpartum or throughout breastfeeding to get uh, vaccinated. And the reason is that only 31% of pregnant women have been vaccinated. And yet, if if a woman who is pregnant gets infected, they have a one in five chance of requiring hospitalization. And there have been 160 deaths on the comparative scale. That's not a, a highly excessive compared to what we've seen across the board, although it is excessive for the typical pregnancy age group. But the big thing is this one in five requiring hospitalization. That's pretty amazing. So that's why CDC is very strongly, urgently recommending that uh, women who are pregnant get vaccinated. Yeah, I've been in favor of uh, women, pregnant women being vaccinated from the start because we know with influenza, uh, the influenza was devastating for those that were pregnant. And the problem is the the immune system damps down so as not to reject the foreign antigens of the child. And so they are immunocompromised by being pregnant. And then on top of that, if they get a respiratory infection like uh, COVID-19 pneumonia, their diaphragm is pushed way up by the pregnancy and their ventilatory function is impaired. So they are at great risk if they uh, contract this infection. So uh, every every pregnant woman should get vaccinated. And to take that one step farther, um, in that what Fred was just talking about was what happens 
the the diaphragm issue is late pregnancy, of course, but early pregnancy um, in the first trimester when the fetus is in organogenesis, the organs are beginning to develop. If a mother gets a very bad fever at that time, there is demonstrated that fevers, and this is across the board, fevers can be detrimental to the, de the normal development of organs. Fortunately, there is no evidence, and that doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but there is no evidence that the virus directly affects the fetus. Um, but there are plenty of other things that can go on. So women who are contemplating pregnancy, pregnant or breastfeeding should by all means get vaccinated. And one of the good things about uh, women who have had the vaccine who are breastfeeding is they uh, their breast milk contains uh, high levels of IgA directed against uh, COVID-19 and therefore uh, the breast milk actually protects their child from developing the infection. Both of you have highlighted the risks to the child of uh, mother being exposed to COVID. Do you feel we have sufficient data around the safety of the vaccine for pregnant women and obviously for the, for the unborn child? Yes, I mean, that's exactly what the... Uh, uh, ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, looked at uh, comparing the the risks associated with the vaccine, which those are measurable risks, and the risks associated with the with getting the disease. And this is the one of the most common issues that we're seeing with the vaccination problems is that people overvalue the risk associated with taking an actual action like getting a vaccine and undervalue the risk that just is baseline in the community. That is the risk of just getting COVID. So uh, when in reality, it's just the reverse is that the risks associated with getting COVID are much higher than the risks that are associated with getting the vaccine. And that includes both to mom, in this case, includes both the risks to mom and the risks to the fetus. And there have been large studies comparing those pregnant women who were vaccinated versus those that were not, uh, irregardless of COVID-19, and they have not found any increased level of stillbirths or uh, spontaneous abortions or any complications uh, compared to the control group. So at this point, I, I believe the uh, gynecologic and obstetric associations strongly support the vaccine. And just a one step farther is that for women contemplating pregnancy, they've looked very carefully at the fertility rates in women who are vaccinated versus women who are not vaccinated, and they are essentially identical. So the vaccine does not impair uh, fertility. Very, very helpful because as uh, both of you know, there's a fair amount of disinformation around this uh, that's coming from a variety of sources online. So. Thanks for the clarification. Let me uh, move on to something which uh, people are concerned about, focused on. It's gotten some degree of attention, which is the so-called long-haul effects of COVID-19 and long-haul victims who have been living with the symptoms and living with um, what I'll refer to as the consequences of having contracted the disease. And, Fred, I don't know whether you've been involved directly in, in treating such patients, what your hospital has revealed, but it'd be great to get your and Bill's view on, uh, on what the data is saying. 
I have not treated uh, these patients, and actually, we have a, uh, a holistic clinic uh, that is actually managing these patients, uh, working with rheumatology. And, and what happens here, we don't know the, the entire pathogenesis, but it appears that the immune reaction to the virus persists after where the virus is cleared, and there is a continued uh, development uh, or the revving up of the immune system. And as a consequence, it, it appears to attack the body and create a uh, muscle weakness, uh, chronic headaches, brain fogginess, and just an overall feeling of not feeling well. And that it's a, it can be very, very debilitating. And, and we saw this, we've seen this with Epstein-Barr virus. Uh, another infection we've seen this with is Lyme disease. So this seems to be a, what we would call a post-infectious uh, complication of certain viruses and bacteria. Um, and it uh, really requires a rheumatologist to manage and right now, we don't have good therapies, but hopefully in the future, we will. The, the one therapy that has seemed to help some is vaccination. Um, in somewhere around a quarter to 30% of people who are having some symptoms, and, and I don't, this is not a, a, not all features are the same in all people. So it's, it's not a, a one single issue, but 25 to 30% of people who get a vaccination actually have a decrease in their, uh, their long haul symptoms. So not really clear what's causing that because that that's not consistent with the mechanism uh, that Fred just outlined. Um, but there does seem to be beneficial in some people. Yeah, it raises the possibility. I, I, I've been very intrigued by that uh, result. And it's possible that, that uh, but we do not know it, there could be a subclinical uh, infection that persists. But we have not, no one has identified uh, a virus for a prolonged period um, as, as the cause of this. And I just, I do want to caution everybody that uh, there is a report that is just coming out this week out of Oxford um, in England that is that the report, the headline on the report is nearly 37% of COVID-19 patients report long COVID. Well, I think that that's exaggerating things a bit. What they're, if you, when you read down into it a little bit, they are reporting one or more features that could be consistent with long COVID. Um, and that's everything from, uh, from fatigue to a, a ongoing chronic cough to uh, various, various body aches and pains to probably the most common one being um, fatigue. Uh, and then also some some uh, mental health symptoms such as anxiety or depression. Um, so it's it is not a there's not one set of symptoms, and it's probably not really thirty seven percent of COVID nineteen uh, patients that have true chronic uh, uh, chronic COVID symptoms. But it is it is not insignificant. Who in the medical community is actually studying this? and attempting to treat it. Well, I know Mount Sinai in New York actually has a long-haul clinic. And uh, I, we, we have a clinic now. And so and, and the, the group that's taken on in our institution 
are those that uh, practice holistic medicine. That is, they use uh, meditation, um, uh, various exercises, in addition to uh, the normal uh, medication therapies to try to help with, with this particular syndrome and acupuncture as well. So I think at this point, people are trying everything and we don't know yet which, which therapies are going to help. And we don't know what the degree of psychological overlay is, what, what component uh, does that play. Uh, so it's 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 as chronic fatigue syndrome has really been difficult to manage, uh, and when people really aren't clear even now uh, what is causing that. And I assume this will be an important issue uh, going forward for employers and um, a workforce where people may need or at least claim that they need extended leaves of absence from work because of the lingering effects of COVID. David, you're exactly right. It was just as in the, um, through the 90s, especially the early 90s, there was um, almost an epidemic of chronic fatigue syndrome. And the problem is that it is real, but not every case can be clearly linked to a physical issue and that's the problem it's just that it's there's it's such a spectrum of uh problems and to the it can get to the point where it becomes an an ADA claim for employers and ADA is uh, the American Americans Disability with Disability Act, Act and right, requirement right. for a employment based um yeah accommodations are the yes, words yes yes yeah, sorry but this also impacts uh decisions that have to be made by insurance companies around disability, near-term, long-term. So uh, I'm sure that uh, places like your hospital, Fred, and Sinai, and you know, there's still more to, more to be learned uh, from the near and long-term effects of, uh, of COVID. Uh, I want to switch topics um, and sort of take this a little bit out of the medical realm, but I want to draw upon your practical experience in working with people. I had a very, very, very interesting and long conversation with one of the senior officials at um, one of New York City's leading hospitals. And uh, as you know, New York is going through a process where vaccinations have become mandatory for city employees. Um, historically, throughout this pandemic but and throughout the country uh, while there's been a high percentage of um, I'll call it physicians who have been vaccinated uh, healthcare workers hospital workers uh, have lagged and there's been um, litigation already around uh, employment decisions and terminations around this and so this hospital is uh, you know going through a situation where um, a number of employees have been vaccinated. Uh, they're dealing with false documents or vaccinations, but they're also uh, dealing with people who have refused and who have now been terminated or put on, you know, long-term leaves of absence. And the what was interesting about my conversation, and that's what I wanted to share with you, was that this senior person who obviously, you know, is among the vaccinated, uh, actually didn't blame the workforce for being reticent about getting vaccinated. Uh, 
um, and viewed this as that throughout this crisis, people have been misled, at times lied to, by a wide variety of institutions as well as at times government officials and government agencies. And also because the nature of science is imprecise, there have been various mid-course corrections where people were told this was a risk or it wasn't a risk. Um, they were told to wear a mask, that masks were not uh, necessarily effective. But within this particular hospital, the staff actually had been, I'll use the word, at times misled about how to protect themselves, about the equipment that was being provided, uh, about the dangers of exposure, etc. And he said that basically throughout, there's been a pandemic uh, around trust and the loss of trust. And while the data is, as you guys have been unbelievably eloquent and persistent, in talking about the data and the safety and the efficacy of these vaccines, when you lose trust, the data almost becomes irrelevant because you've lost trust. And it was very interesting to hear this from this, this person, but this is, he said, this is the battle he's fighting. Trust has been lost on other fronts, and so it's very, very hard to regain it, even when the data and the evidence is so clear. So let me pause there, and I'd love to Maybe just hear your reactions to that uh, position. David, I've got a, a fairly strong reaction to it. And that I think that I think you're exactly right. Um, I, one of the things, though, that I feel that is very interesting and that I've seen fairly consistently is that people haven't, to the same extent that they have lost trust and faith in government, lost trust and faith in their employers. And it's probably because of being you know, closer to the uh, closer to the action. I think that when employers have have set up mechanisms to be able to communicate clearly and fact based information to their employees, they develop a trust as being the honest broker in the information. And I've seen that time and time again. Yes, there are clearly clearly places where there is employee-employer distrust. Oftentimes, it's because there's a, a third party involved in that. But in many, many cases, the employers that have focused on, on getting information to their workforce um, have, been, have become the trusted entity in, in much of this. I think that's uh, Bill's point is very well taken. And when you think about it, the employers and those that are working for them have the same interest. The employers want their workers to be healthy. They don't want them out sick. They don't want them to be uh, hospitalized. So they're working for the same goal to make the bit, the environment where they work safe for everyone so that they don't get sick. Now, I, I just gave a talk uh, this last week on diagnostic error for physicians. And so I read a considerable amount about the concept of metacognition. And that is how we make decisions. And there's, uh, in um, doctors do this, we look at diagnostic errors and we see what went wrong. And one of the big things that happens is physicians uh, and anyone anchors. That is, they come up with a, a conclusion and they will not change that conclusion despite 
uh, data that contradicts that conclusion. And they will what we call cherry pick the data. That is, they will just uh, really remember or pay attention to data that fits with their original diagnosis. And I think that this, uh, along with trust, I think uh, trust is absolutely uh, critical. And one of the problems uh, with trust is that um, a number of politicians strongly question the CDC, strongly question experts in the field of infectious disease and continue to do that. So, of course, that destroys trust. But the other important thing is we all need to remain mentally flexible. That is, we don't fixate. We should all be willing to take in new data, reassess our situation. In this case, if you make the wrong decision, it could be fatal. And disinformation has uh, resulted in many, many lives being lost. So I think we need to rethink, recalibrate, look at what's happened, look at the mortality, look at the uh, one of the most startling graphs is was from our institution where we looked at the percent of unvaccinated that were hospitalized for COVID-19 versus the percent that were vaccinated. And there's this giant bar in 95, 96% are unvaccinated. Hey, that's new data. Obviously, the vaccine is saving lives and preventing people from being hospitalized just from that one piece of data. Why shouldn't you accept that? Why shouldn't you rethink what, what your conclusions were and perhaps return to trusting the CDC, return to trusting infectious disease physicians who have been working in this field for decades? But I'd like to go in one other uh issue and that's something we've talked about before is the some of the psychology that goes along with mandating vaccines as as you know Fred and I both agree that vaccines are incredibly important that they are the way through this out of this um, vaccines work there is no doubt about it I've just been very uncomfortable with the idea of vaccine mandates and it, it really stems from the same issue that you're talking about. There is a loss of trust in, in the authorities that are making these mandates. And therefore, if you don't trust that the person who is telling you you have to do something has your best interest at heart, you're going to be pretty resistant. In fact, you may actually go the opposite direction. So that's, that's been the root of my discomfort with vaccine mandates. That's no, I don't have any discomfort with, with cajoling to doing whatever we can to get people to get, to get uh, vaccines. But I just am concerned that because of this lack of trust, that mandates may have a, a, a countervailing effect. But the uh, data so far, as the, the mandates are starting to be really pressed, as in New York City, a uh, majority of those that were resistant have accepted the vaccine. When a push came to shove, they did not want to lose their job. And when in the healthcare, when an individual uh, who is caring for patients refuses the vaccine, uh, they are at higher risk of spreading, of contracting the virus and spreading it to patients. So if your uh, primary goal as a healthcare worker is to protect your patients, of course you're going to become vaccinated. You should be vaccinated. And I, I think people are resistant, but when it comes to losing their job, all of a sudden they say, well, 
maybe that other dad isn't so bad after all, and I'm just going to guts it out and get the vaccine. And I that does appear what's happening. There's some institutions where they were at 80%. After the mandate, they got up to 94%. That's a big difference, and that's very important in controlling infection in a localized area. Well, they hand out Nobel Prizes to the economists who can figure out what shapes behavior and and certain outcomes in the marketplace. And what I'm hearing both of you saying is that there are certainly some lessons that we have acquired uh, in the course of this pandemic about human behavior, the incentives that need to be in place, and also what what are the roadblocks uh, to people accepting the message and the evidence and the data. And so um, what I'm sort of gleaning from both of you, these are issues of trust. And ultimately, you know, sometimes the risk reward, it's not just a medical thing of the benefits of the vaccine versus the risks of, uh, of COVID. It may very well have to be the risk of losing your job, the risk of paying more for your medical insurance, the risk of not being able to you know, travel or leave your home or whatever, or attend a, a baseball game or whatever. So um, hopefully, um, you know, we'll be in a position to gather these uh, lessons and, and continue to uh, document them. Uh, I will um, pay a compliment to both of you because you've been so gracious with your time. But to remind the audience, the reason this podcast began was because there was so much disinformation. Uh, concerning the virus and a possible medical treatment as well as vaccines. And both Bill and Fred stepped forward and said they'd like to try to do their part to clear the environment, to be the honest broker, honest messenger, to help the audience separate fact from fiction. So uh, once again, we're in both of your debt. Truly appreciate your time today, and I look forward to our conversation uh, next week. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution and get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. 